0: Behold the Argonath, the pillars of the kings, cried Aragorn. We shall pass them soon. Keep the boats in line, and as far apart as you can. Hold the middle of the stream. As Frodo was borne towards them, the great pillars rose like towers to meet him. Giants they seemed to him, vast gray figures, silent but threatening. Then he saw that they were, indeed, shaped and fashioned. The crafted power of old had wrought upon them, and still they preserved through the suns and rains of forgotten years the mighty likenesses in which they had been hewn. Upon great pedestals founded in the deep waters stood two great kings of stone. Still with blurred eyes and crannied brows they frowned upon the north. The left hand of each was raised palm outwards in gesture of warning. In each right hand there was an axe. Upon each head there was a crumbling helm and crown. Great power and majesty still they wore, the silent wardens of a long-vanished kingdom. Awe and fear fell upon Frodo, and he cowered down, shutting his eyes and not daring to look up as the boat drew near. Even Boromir bowed his head as the boats whirled by, frail and fleeting as little leaves under the enduring shadow of the Sentinels of Numenor. So they passed into the dark chasm of the gates. Sheer rose the dreadful cliffs to unguessed heights on either side. Far off was the dim sky, the black waters roared and echoed, and a wind screamed over them. Frodo, crouching over his knees, heard Sam in front muttering and groaning. What a place, what a horrible place. Just let me get out of this boat, and I'll never wet my toes in a puddle again, let alone a river. Fear not, said a strange voice behind him. Frodo turned and saw Strider, and yet not Strider, for the weather-worn ranger was no longer there. In the stern sat Aragorn, son of Arathorn, proud and erect, guiding the boat with skillful strokes. His hood was cast back, and his dark hair was blowing in the wind. A light was in his eyes, a king returning from exile to his own land. Fear not, he said, long have I desired to look upon the likenesses of Isildur and Anarion, my sires of old. Under their shadow, Elisar the Elfstone, son of Erathorn of the house of Valandil, Isildur's son, heir of Elendil, has naught to dread. The Waylesser Inklings podcast attempts to pay homage to the great writers, thinkers, and philosophers of the 20th century known as the Inklings, and to try to inspire a love for reading literature and finding the good, the true, and the beautiful in the written word. Welcome back to the Way Lesser Inklings podcast. My name is Josh Rice. I'm one of the hosts, and here with me again is my brother, Jake. Hey. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about the chapter that is called The Great River. It's an interesting chapter that I think is one of those that on the surface may seem like this episode is going to be like 25 minutes long, but I think we've identified some some good morsels in there, some some dainties. Yeah.
1: <laughs> These dainties aren't for you.
0: <laughs> some tr- some small trifles in there that we'd like to talk about. So as is customary, I'll kick it to you, Jake, and I think you had laid out what you think it's about, and I agree entirely. So why don't you lay it on everybody here, Jake?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the chapter is, is largely about diverging paths. Um, and so to go ahead and just spoil it right out of the gate, I really think that the two theme characters here Aragorn and Boromir um and we've you know we we have been talking about um the path that Boromir's on the temptation that he's succumbing to and is his internalizing it instead of living in community and we'll we'll break that down further but um really what I see uh here is Boromir who who started in a high place right as the son of the steward um of Gondor, uh, who's sitting in a high place, comes to Rivendell for val- for valiant reasons, um, is now giving in to temptation and and weakening himself continually, and, we, and we're and we going to see that more in this chapter and ultimately to his doom. Um, and then conversely, we have Aragorn, who is a relative unknown. I mean, he is... He's the king, but in society, right, he's unknown. He's coming out of the shadows. I think it's not any coincidence that there's fog sitting over this whole chapter, sitting over the company. And it's giving protection, but there's fog sitting over Aragorn and Boromir's relationship. And then they pass, they pass through the Argonath. Uh, and it clears, the fog clears, and Aragorn appears to be a different man, Um, and the text is pretty clear about that. So I think that's the big theme, Um, and then there's other pieces to break down and kind of build back to it. Yeah,
0: and I think also one of the meta things that's kind of going on in this chapter is that the fog really has this symbolic simplicity that the company doesn't know which path they're going to take, and they're running out of time to choose a path. Yeah they're gonna to have to make their decision. They're gonna to have to go with that. And that's really the end of the deal. So that's that's where this chapter is driving towards the whole time. And we've we've yep. talked about it before, and I wanna say this again because it's the kind of thing that I would forget. Like I would get lost in this in this episode. People always break this story into a trilogy and call it a trilogy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Tolkien himself within the trilogy broke it up into six different books. And I think that as we've done this, it starts to become really yep. obvious that these six books That in each of these books, there's an arc and it has a build to it where it's in a way somewhat self-contained. Where this story is, we're rounding up and we're finishing book two. And we're seeing that book two has a lot different tone and a lot different types of themes and arcs than book one had. And I think that we've been on a pathway that this chapter is really the last one in a series of about four or five that has been leading to the same goal. Like If you look at it closely, all the subtlety and all the character stuff is leading to this big climax that is the last chapter of this book. And I think it's a brilliant thing he did because he weaves such pacing into this story. It's a long story, but it never really feels long when you read it because it has such momentum. And when he lets it, he lets it rest often. And this is one of those chapters where I think Gandalf said in the movie, it's like the deep breath before the plunge this chapter is really like that it seems like it's pretty calm there's there's some inklings in there pun intended of some stuff coming but the big thing doesn't happen but we know that it's going to and this chapter ends knowing that something big is about to happen and he's brought it to that point and i love it it's a great chapter it's one that i think would maybe often be forgotten without careful reading except for the argonoth which is pretty iconic
1: yeah yeah which, that's a really good segue, because I think as we as we break down the chapter, there's kind of uh, hit, kind of points that we go along in the narrative that we're going to sort of rest on. And the first one is the black swans. And so it's right out of the gate. They're, you know, they're coming down the river, and Sam spots swans, large ones. And Aragorn makes a point to note that they're black swans. And you know we we took note of that <laughs> because, um, you know, kind of the the deeper symbolism of a black swan is that it you know it represents something that's um, that an unexpected event or occurrence is coming, and in some interpretations, it also can lean, lean uh, lend you to rationalizing the event through hindsight, um, you know, and so it, it, Tolkien's given us a. <laughs> An absurdly subtle clue, you know, along with the other things that we're seeing. But it's like, to, to your point that you just made, is the black swans are a clue that the unraveling is happening. We can all feel it. And he's just given us one more little pointer along the way. And I think other authors would probably put
0: a paragraph about the black swans here. Yeah, it is to, to symbolize that thing, to really draw attention to it. But what Tolkien does is, in his way, well, man, he's he's really deft, he's so good at doing this, is that he does actually draw attention to it by the sentence structure, but not in a really obvious way. Because what happens is, it says that... that sam said swans and mighty big ones too like is sam's talking the way that he's going to talk in this chapter which i know will will comment it's kind of like a, a hayseed way of yep. talking, right <laughs> but but then right next to that this is important he he uses sam in that way because right next to that aragorn talks in this stilted way he says yes and they are black swans and If you think that that thinks, that's a weird sentence, right? If somebody pointed to some swans to you and they you're like kind of driving around the country, country, which is what this seems like, they'd say, "Hey, there's some big swans over there and somebody said, yes, and they are black swans. That's not how you would expect that to be said, right?'re <laughs> like, what Why did you say it like that? <laughs> I think the reason why is because we're seeing differences by using language. And that's something that Tolkien was very fascinated in doing It's that he, he messes with sentence structure a lot. And mm-hmm. he does that so subtly here to just draw attention to something that is really early in the chapter. And he says, basically, look, I'm giving you a nod at what is about to happen here in hindsight. And it's so deep, yep. right? In, in the meta, it's, it's like it's in hindsight because you're not going to mm-hmm. catch this the first time through, but in hindsight you can say, Oh, <laughs> he was leading me by the hand there just like the swans signify, no. right? That's what no. we consider, and we can see it in hindsight. It works in so many ways, and it really just blows your mind when you when you think about the genius of what he does here, that you can really only catch this probably in hindsight.
1: It's really interesting. Yeah, and, and like you said, the fact that he doesn't give us, you know, a paragraph or two on the meaning of the foreboding nature of swans, you know, he just doesn't. He never does that. Right? He makes you work for it, <laughs>
0: no that's right and it it really comes kind of out of a desolation thing and he does it with his characters that are acting truly like Sam talks the way he talks and Aragorn is Mm going to talk the way he talks especially in this chapter there's a lot of instances of something that's going on with Aragorn and I think a real reason is because he's a man who's really embraced that he's going to meet his destiny at this point in a way he's been commissioned by the monastery at Lorien right he was sent out from Rivendell and he was, and now he's been commissioned and almost knighted, in a sense, by Galadriel and Celeborn. And so it's time, and he feels that weight very heavily. Aragorn, in this chapter, the only indecision he has is about his compassion and his love and his need to protect Frodo and the importance and primacy of Frodo's mission versus what he knows he has to do, which is to go off to Minas Tirith because it's his kingdom. It's an interesting thing going. And I think that probably brings us to, well, before we get to the guest that you talked about last week, Gollum spoiler. Yeah, <laughs> Gollum. <laughs> that that there's this thing because it it features Boromir, and I think that it features him so heavily that we've got to talk about it. Basically, they're on this river, sitting in boats like wooden boats for hours and hours every day. Mm-hmm. They're starting very early mm-hmm. in the morning, and they're not paddling super hard like they're trying to save their strength but they're also kind of delaying the decision right they're just floating all day long so try to imagine that you're sitting there Mm -hmm. you're bored you're in a wooden boat for hours on end. and tolkien tolkien then uses Mm -hmm. this opportunity to give us an insight in a way he starts to use it for a couple of people here and show what their mind is at kind of character development he shows that they're daydreaming he gives us kind of what they're thinking he says for example that legolas is running under the stars and under trees and stuff so he's imagining what he's going to do with his free time it shows what he loves gimli in like manner he's thinking about the best way to encase his gift from galadriel which is that i think it's an honorable pursuit he's thinking about what he loves he's thinking about things that are beautiful and what he'll be doing with his time and then we get to boromir and boromir it basically says that he's muttering to himself that he's ill at ease because he's thinking about what he lusts after not what he loves and in the pursuit of this he makes marion pippin's trip really miserable sin never affects only you because they're in the boat with him and he won't talk to them. They're, so they're just in silence sitting there with this this person muttering. He's, he has restlessness and doubt that says consumed him. He's biting his nails. Sometimes they're floating and sometimes he grabs a paddle and like erratically starts yeah. rowing really hard to get up close to Aragorn's boat. And then he's like glaring at Frodo. And I think I think this is where we're starting to see that mm-hmm. he knows what he's going to do. Yeah, Maybe definitely. he hasn't admitted or accepted it yet, but he knows what he's going to do. Is is that how you see this? Because I think I think that that's what Tolkien is driving at. And I want to give this to you because I think you had pitched the idea and said it. And I like the way you described Boromir in this chapter. And I think this is the point where we don't want to miss it. This is what he's done. He's decided what he's going to do. So go ahead and take right. off on on your thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's really it's really stunning because uh, since the beginning, you know, he's been stalwart in his drive to minus Tirith. And, and that's a good thing. There's no, there's no issue with that, right? Elrond at the, at the departure of the company says no oath or bond is laid upon you. So no one's bound, right? Essentially they're all bound to protect the ring bearer as long as he's with them. And where they choose to depart then that that bond is over. And so Boromir's path has been really clear. And so basically, yeah, his his inability to escape the temptation and then and and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna jump very soon to the other character who just has a gnawing, you know, inability to overcome his his desire for the ring. You know, but that's what's happening is that he's lost focus of the mission. He's lost, he's broken fellowship with the rest of the party, you know, and, um, you know, and, and lost sight of what he's trying to do, which was so straightforward. Like, his path is straight from the beginning, and he's making it crooked.
0: Yeah, I would say that probably, you know, besides Frodo, mm-hmm. he's really the only one at the company that never had any doubt about where he was going to end up. I mean, he had... Told them from the start, like that he was he was going to Rivendell to try to get counsel, and then he was going to go back to Minas Tirith, and that many long leagues they they would share along with the Fellowship because it was the Mm -hmm. way back. He was he's basically with them because he was always going to go back to Minas Tirith, and the way back was kind of the same way. And Boromir's been a great warrior, and and he knew what he was going to do. So it's all about Minas Tirith. So for him to be sitting restless shows me here that that he has this doubt, but it's not the same doubt that the rest of the fellowship has. The doubts on him isn't about where he's going. The doubt to him, I think, is about how he's going to hatch this scheme. He's he's scheming Mm -hmm. it out in his head. He's lusting after it. And now he's just he's driving himself mad, trying to reach out his hand to embrace the wickedness and Mm -hmm. get the ring. And he's made up his mind that he's going to do it. And because he's a moral man, it makes him sick. He is suppressing his conscience. And like many moral men, like really every one of us has had times where we've been blind to the death and sickness that we've actively decided to pursue. And so we're so focused on getting a hold of our of the, the object of our desire and grabbing it and, and fulfilling and, and satiating our lust mm-hmm. that we don't realize that it's killing us and it's killing everything around us. What Boromir should have done here was he should have told what was mm-hmm. on his mind, at the very least to Mary and Pippin. And he should have talked to them because they're in the community. The fellowship, the honor that they have for one another would have been a really powerful force, I think, to put this in check. Mm-hmm. But instead he's withdrawn himself and now he has a mission of his own. And yeah. that mission is for
1: pure wickedness. Yeah. yeah, and it's you know, and we see the juxtaposition of it from last chapter where Gimli shares the desire of his heart, you know, to to remain in Lothlorien, even though and you know, and the reasons behind that. And, and he knows that that's the wrong choice and, you know, and Legolas, you know, in that conversation is, is gracious and kind, but firm, (laughs) you know, your, your motives in, right. And it is like, your motives are clear, but that's not where you need to be. (laughs) Well, yeah, you,
0: you can hear it. Boromir has, he's, he's going to put the finishing touches on this in the next chapter, Boromir has rationalized this thing into saying, hey, this is okay because it's the only way. It's the only way Sauron's going to be defeated. That's what he's told himself over and over again against all the wisdom and all the authority that was set over him. And so he's going to defy authority and suppress the truth to reach out and grab evil that he's rationalized
1: in his own mind. Yeah. Yeah, it is a stark reminder of the the common refrain in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes that the, you know, the fool binds his folly in his heart. And, and so like that's continually what he's done. And, you know, he's, he's acting foolish because he's, he's, he's continually binding his folly in his heart instead of letting it out where it can be rebuked. Yeah. I, I think that's really probably a good segue into the next section
0: because what Boromir's is really doing is he's, exact, he's acting exactly like Gollum. And, and Tolkien puts it right here. Why does he put these things in this order? It's because, again, he's not drawing embellishment to any similarity. It seems like a natural conversation. Even the way Sam brings up Gollum is really interesting. And then the whole situation is showing that what Boromir is doing is he's growing bolder and bolder. He's unable to even keep his unrest inside of himself. Now it's boiling its way out to where Merry and Pippin notice that he's looking at Frodo weird with a gleam in his eye. And he's like, he's (laughs) floating down the stream, muttering and (laughs) biting his fingernails like a crazy person. And then you grab the oar and speed up to be next to the other boat. It's
1: really what right. gets Gollum eventually, right? Yeah, if you didn't know better, you'd ask how many how many gallons of mead did you have? <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, what is wrong yeah. with you? Why are you sitting here right. talking
0: mumbling yeah. to yourself? Talk to us. Why are you mumbling yeah. all the time? But that's what it does. It makes you blind and stupid. So you want to yeah. jump in and Sam at this point, they they pull they pull out for the night and Sam comes to Frodo. And he said, yeah. the way he says it is so entertaining. I don't know. <laughs> I saw something weird. <laughs> what did you say? I, I think
1: when we were talking about this earlier, you said Sam is kind uh, of like an honorable Rube. Yeah, he is. I think um, <laughs> I think definitely the way he speaks. I think we talked about it some about S- Sam seems to not carry any kind of burden on himself. And I think that's out of a, and that's where I say an honorable rude rube, because I think it's out of a, I think it's out of an ignorance of a war of the world and the station that he comes from where it's like, again, and this is like, I, I work in a blue collar job. Like <laughs> I have no ill will toward that, but it's like, he's the gardener for an estate. And so his, his, his station is very common. So he doesn't carry a certain. You know, uh, even in the Shire's way, like a lordliness that Merry and Pippin and Frodo from historic families carry, if that makes sense. And there's a there, you know, and there's a world wisdom that he that he lacks. <laughs> yeah,
0: but he is going to grow grow out of that eventually. But yeah, that is true. It's interesting, though, because, you know, my whole job is also around blue-collar people, you know. And what, what happens is one of the things that I think people that are white-collar don't understand is that blue-collar people tell the best stories. They really do. And one of the things that happens here is that the way Sam tells this story is entertaining and funny. And basically, he comes up to Frodo. He says, I think I had a funny dream an hour or two before we stopped. And he said, well, maybe – or it wasn't a dream. It was funny anyway. And Frodo says, knowing that Sam won't settle down until he's told his tale – Frodo says, well, tell me about it. I haven't seen anything that would make me smile since we left Lorien." So Sam's baited the hook here, right, basically. And he says, it's not funny that way. It was queer. It was strange. And if it wasn't a dream, you'd best hear it. So he says he saw a log with eyes. And then Frodo, in a really funny way, kind of goes along with him and says, well, the log is all right. There are many in the river, but leave out the eyes. And Sam says, I won't do that. It was the eyes that made me sit up, so to speak. And so what's funny about this is that what Sam does is he knows what he's talking about here and he chooses to introduce it this way. And I don't know if it's because he's kind of afraid or kind of concerned because this is just a a interesting thing to do. He's been so bored all day and this is a way to entertain himself, but essentially he's telling him about Gollum and they both know that it's about Gollum, right? And for, and Frodo reassures him and says, yeah, that's what you were seeing. I might think you were dreaming too if I hadn't seen him at the flet and Lorien, right? Those eyes, and I think that's where it gets super interesting, right? Because Aragorn says that he knows Gollum's been following them since Moria, and that he's tried to catch Gollum several times while he's been following them. And I think that sets us up to park here for a little bit to talk about Gollum and why he's in this chapter. I think there's multiple reasons. There's a reason that's driving this chapter, and then there's a reason in the whole story arc, obviously. But I'll let you
1: take off on that. Yeah, yeah. So I think I do think the reason he's um, driving in this chapter is is to show the kind of reckless burning that the ring causes out of desire because you know up to this point we we've we've known Gollum, you know has been with us since moria because of the plotting feat that frodo hears obviously um aragorn has known the whole way um which is not a surprise given given his ability yeah and i think yeah he's
0: He's so astute, and and as a ranger, he's so in tune that it really, it really doesn't even damage my ring theory from the last episode, which is the most important thing here, right? Okay, well, I don't think I have any wild theories in this chapter, so I have to live on that <laughs> one. I gotta die on that
1: hill, so don't take it away from me. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna move on from that. So, <laughs> yeah, and so, so he, um, yeah, and so essentially the, like, Essentially, what's happening is Gollum is losing uh, his secrecy in a sense, right? Because Sam is like, so when I say the honorable Rube too, is like, like Sam in a sense is just happy to be there, and so it, like not happy, you know what I mean? Like he's happy to be serving Frodo, and so like he's he's the least in tune, I would say, of like the dangers of what what's going on around. And so if Sam is picking up on Gollum, that that means that Gollum is getting careless. And so and, and the only reason that can be, I mean it doesn't change his craftiness, obviously if Aragorn can't catch him, he's he's wily and crafty. But it, it but it also but I think in this chapter specifically it's it's drawing ties between Boromir because we know we know Gollum's um insane drive for the ring and so i think it's giving us that same like it, it, it makes him careless what does
0: frodo do he constantly walks around muttering to himself all the time right i mean he's famous for mm-hmm. gurgling in his yeah. throat and saying my precious all the time talking to no one and he's going to do that throughout yeah. the story i mean he's yeah. just whispering to himself curses all the time and it shows that that's yeah. where boromir is going he's sitting in the boat right. muttering to himself Yeah. I think it also shows that Gollum has almost hit his limit here too, Mm -hmm. right? He's been patiently following, like just faint footsteps from far away in Moria. And now he comes up to the shore. He nearly gets in a boat with Frodo sitting like... Like less than 10 feet away from him he's sitting there and frodo draws his sword and Gollum sees that and darts off mm-hmm. so it's basically it's almost overcome all of his caution at this point yeah, he's come just, out in the open and that's going to continue right Gollum is going to go from evading the elves in mirkwood to evading aragorn the greatest hunter in the age yeah. to basically getting caught right. by frodo and sam because It just overcomes him. He can't wait anymore. His lust overtakes his caution, and he throws all of his caution to the wind. And that's where Boromir is going, because in the next chapter, when Boromir makes his move, it's really just the same way. He throws all caution to the wind, and he just has to go for it, and it's disastrous. Right. So I think that's why he's here. Yeah. I think I think in another sense that Tolkien has been building this breadcrumb for a long time to, yep. to introduce the character back because he plays such an important role in book four, right? Because yeah, because we are gonna right. lose this thread for a long time and then
1: we'll we'll pick him right, right back up pretty quickly in yep. book four. Yep. Yeah, and it is. It's I think it's a couple things. I think it is a comparison and it's it's introducing the char- character and it's giving a little bit of tension as well, you know, up until this point, like um I think a, a second time and beyond, reader are going to be obviously know who it is. You know that first time reader, it is a it is a kind of tension builder, um, at least for a little while. Mm. Oh yeah. Well, that that's a creepy scene
0: when Gollum is almost getting in the boat. There, they're basically looking mm-hmm. at each other at that point, and I mean the rage mm-hmm. and the lust has just almost yeah. completely overcome to where he would get within the grasp of things that would be able to bind him and put him under. I mean, essentially, he can't assault the fellowship. Yeah, yeah he's sneaky, but he's right. not powerful like right. that. So so now we right. float on yeah. down the river, and so they come to the Sarn Gabir, which is which is uh, rapids, that basically, I guess, no one can traverse this by boat. So they have to pull off, but they get a little too far. Aragorn kind of gets out of his depth. It seems like the river carries him faster than he expected, and so it comes up on him, and they get caught almost at the worst time. So they have to stop and paddle really hard against the current to get out of the rapids, and while they're doing that, there's orcs on the eastern shore that start shooting arrows at them, and then there's a flying beast that... That Legolas shoots out of the air with an arrow, and they they don't really know what it is, but Frodo certainly knows what it is. I think I think that's kind of an episode here, and I don't know did you did you want to do anything there with that?
1: Um, no, not really. I think it's another one of those moments where um, I think Tolkien is just giving us, obviously, he's giving us the shadow of the Nazgul again and building that tension back. I do think that it heart you know it kind of brought to mind. Uh, I can't remember, I can't remember if it, the line is in this chapter, or the last one, but as they're leaving Lothlorien, you know, Aragorn says that, you know, the enemy hasn't been idle. And, and so, you know, in, in relatively short turnaround, the nine are back and are on winged steeds now. Um, and, and that is terrifying, I think he's also <laughs> developing the danger of the eastern shore that that
0: the enemy is at hand here. Yeah, there's almost a sense of like, well, they're they're patrolling the eastern right. shore at this point, so it's important that they stay away from there, or yeah. or that they stay secret, that sort of thing. I also think thinks I think there's another nugget here. Once, once Legolas shoots down or shoots at it, they don't really know what it was. And Frodo says it wasn't a Balrog, which is interesting because it has the same kind of spiritual realm feeling like the Balrog that affects them, right? It's a creature that's obviously something that has some sort of terrifying spiritual hmm. effect to it. And he says it was something colder. And then Boromir eagerly says, what do you think it was? And it it says that he leaned from his boat, like trying to catch a glimpse of Frodo's face. And basically, Frodo says that he's not going to say. I think Frodo knows because Frodo's got that wound that just kind of clues him into what was going on there. And I agree with you. I I think it's about danger. I think it's about the pursuit that's coming now. And there's basically not going to be any place from this point on, right? It's going to be like that. We're amping up as we move into book three and four. That that we're in a full-scale war now. And I I know in the next chapter, it's really going to solidify that with Frodo's visions. It's all happening right now. And then this interesting thing happens. They start talking about. Praise to the bow of Galadriel because Legolas shoots it down, right? And then they start start talking about trying to remember how many days had passed. And Frodo says this strange thing. He says they're talking about Lorien and how great it is. And Frodo says, wearing, he's wearing down. I think you know he's talking about Lorien. He says the wearing is slow in Lorien. The power of the lady is on it. Rich are the hours though short they seem in Caras Galathon, where Galadriel wields the Elven ring. Aragorn immediately sharply rebukes him and says, "That should not have been said outside of Lorien, not even to me. Speak no more of it." You know, they're 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 just sitting there, kind of reminiscing about Lorien, and then this one comes out, and I'll tell you, this one really just kind of gave me fits because it it doesn't progress the story, and so when you know that, you can't just chalk things up to well, well, that's just a thing that was in there because Tolkien doesn't do that. So I was trying to figure out what he's trying to do with this. Why is this here? And I think I saw a couple of parallels. I'm not real sure where I land ultimately, but one of those parallels that I remember way back in book one, when Frodo was saying that if he went much further without stopping, that he would turn into a wraith. And Aragorn rebukes him sharply and says, don't say things like that. And similarly, it's kind of like a situation here where Frodo has had this encounter with the Nazgul, and maybe it's presence of evil. But I think more than that, we've got this language thing going. And I think Frodo almost gets carried away with himself and wants to wax poetic. And I think he just kind of gets loose-lipped with it. Right when he had just been tight-lipped about... Even you know giving what he thought was the identity of the Nazgul, and I think it's one more teaching moment because he's going to be extremely tight-lipped as the story goes on. He he has to learn that he really can't trust anybody outside of the fellowship. He can't be completely open, and I I don't mm-hmm. know if that's why it's here. Um, you you could probably hopefully yeah. inform me. What do you think about yeah. it?
1: It is, yeah, it is interesting. I I have um a couple thoughts. The first one is interesting because he already like just a minute ago. Right. He's tight lipped about what he thinks, you know, the shadow is that was shot down. And we've seen, you know, we've we've seen some instances of that where he's been really cautious about, um, you know, we, we've said before. Right. He's learned his lesson about conversing about the mission and the one ring. And so I do think that there's an element of, yeah, of trying to um, to bring Lorien into some poetry you know, cause there's a little bit of a rhyme in the statement that he makes. Um, but I also, I think too, that the, the sharpness from Aragorn is that essentially like the, the rings of power are not, you know, are not for discussion because that we know that the three are still hidden, right? The three were never revealed. And we also know that there's trade regardless, right? There's traders in the midst, <laughs> I don't think we're explicitly pointing to anyone in the fellowship. It's like even the, like, even the traitorship of Saruman would suggest that he doesn't know who has the three, even though all three were right under his nose. Right. No one talks about them
0: ever. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously yeah. veiled, too, because it, it seemed that only a ring bearer could even see it, because no one else could see Galadriel's yeah. ring. She would presumably be wearing it at least a
1: lot, or if not the whole time. Yeah, yeah but what, I mean i don't know it is it is a it is kind of a strange thing um and you know and really until the very end galadriel's ring is the only one that's ever that's mentioned until right until the very very end you know and obviously it's because it's interesting because she right she wears her temptation openly um to it the other the other two have also encountered the one ring and are not exposed that's an interesting thing that it's a secret thing
0: i guess yeah maybe maybe he just gets carried away in his praise maybe it's something like that it's a good reminder to us that that you don't talk about those things and that's going to be really important they're going to be tight-lipped about this quest like they can't tell anybody what's going on and that really is a thing from this point on i think it's because galadriel was more bent towards really trying to be a dominating force and i think Elrond is really fascinated with learning. And in some ways, he's more about settling. He wants to settle his place and become like a beacon of counsel. And of course, Gandalf is about stirring up and motivating the forces of good. I think it's interesting because we get no temptation from Elrond whatsoever, right? He's one of the the characters that I think it's presumably because he was there and saw what it did to Isildur. And so he just understands that he's not going to do it. I don't think Gandalf was was really, you know, he said, don't tempt me and he explained what the temptation could lead to, but I don't know that Gandalf was really seriously tempted either. But Galadriel was most certainly tempted. She considered taking it, and really in some ways... So she's also standing in contrast to Boromir, because I think there's no indication that the rest of the Fellowship has been tempted at all. There's been no sign of it with anyone else. And so there's this thing about the ring, almost in a way. Frodo is unwise here because he lets fly something, and maybe it's it's that he needs just a little bit more guidance and wisdom and leadership before ultimately he goes off into darkness. And I think there could be a play like that going on here because it's so quick and it and it's from aragorn and it happens immediately i don't know it stuck out to me because it seems strange in the context but it's also it's also one of those things that frodo is developing as a character and i think critics of the story say that he doesn't and they're just flat wrong he's learning wisdom he's learning how to best fulfill the quest and also i think he learns as time goes on how to be a leader how how to how to be a good master in hierarchy over sam from from those who he's followed he's kind and he learns even more kindness, but he also learns that he he has to be stern at times as the story goes on. It's probably that's probably enough about that because I think we're really to the to the meat of it because they have this big argument. They get off the river and there's a decision they're going to scout out. They're gonna see if they can put in past the rapids. And Boerbeer does not like that. Boromir says that they should just forget the boats and go off to Minas Tirith right now because it would be the easier path. He's right about that. It would probably be the better path to go to Minas Tirith. Aragorn says, well, that's if we're going to Minas Tirith. And he argues, but it's interesting because at the end, it says that Boromir held out long against the choice to scout it out. But when it became plain that Frodo would follow Aragorn wherever he went, he gave in. And then he said, it's not the way of men of Minas Tirith to desert their friends at need. And you will need my strength if ever you are to reach the tall Brandir, To the tall isle I will go. But no further. There, I shall turn mm-hmm. to my home alone. If my help has not earned the reward of any yeah. companionship, yeah.
1: that's a quotation that really has yeah. a lot in it. Yeah, and I think for me, um, I think it it's, again. It ties back to Elrond's, you know, um, I don't know his blessing to the fellowship or his uh, his commission is, is what I'm looking for to the fellowship, right? And 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 it seems that. Boromir has remembered nothing from the Council of Elrond. Right? Like and and I think for me, like the chapter the chapter is this chapter is kind of the undoing of Boromir until until the next chapter. And it's like all of the things, right? Then and so for, for this part, no bond or oath is laid upon anyone. You know, and and now he's basically trying to passively manipulate people manipulate people in the fellowship into a bond with him to minus tirith when that was never the case right and so you know it's just the it's just the undoing right again like why can we not use the ring against sauron those things were explained you know were explained and it's and he's he's undone he's made his choice and his
0: choice is that he doesn't care about the mission anymore and and what it does is it brings madness and weakness yep to him and ultimately they're not going to listen to him because the thing is is that Frodo is going to act like he has a decision to make but he's never going to seriously consider going to Minas Tirith and the reason for that is because he knows what he has to do the time that Frodo is going to take to consider the path is because he says it himself it's because he's afraid to do it it seems easier to go mm-hmm. to Minas Tirith because that's where all the good guys are. It seems daunting to leave that path and basically have no mm-hmm. way back. And to go east is to go into Mordor where there's no turning back. It's to go straight into, you know, the the stronghold yeah. of the enemy where his spies are everywhere, where the land is desolate. It's a, it's a desperate thing. And obviously Boromir doesn't like that because that option would take the ring out of his grasp, right? And so there's a there's a really interesting contrast mm-hmm. that starts to come into play here. Because while Boromir is muttering to himself in madness, and he's he's in the midst of this, you know, this fog because he's put blindness on himself, Aragorn is desperately trying to get out of the fog while Boromir is descending into it because mm-hmm. in this at this part Aragorn what he wants to do is he wants to go to the yep. high seat of Amon Hen to be able to see clearly he basically wants to gain wisdom and sight so they're going in opposite directions and I think it becomes yeah. extremely obvious when they come to the Argonath and that's probably where Boromir does a lame attempt to try to say well it's it's going to get more and more dangerous as you go south and Aragorn says right. every southern path is dangerous like what do you think we're trying to do here so there we go yeah they they scout there's this dangerous moment where legolas and him have <laughs> to go scout and they see if there's a road to get down to the river and they leave and then they come back in a couple of hours they found something there's a road so they get back on the river and now they're going to see the argonoth so i think the first thing and i'll i'll give you a long time on this one but i, I think the first thing i want to say is that the Argonaut is obviously magical because these statues are thousands of years old. It's, it's almost magical how they could even get built because they're so huge. And basically their, their foundation is in the deep water, the water of the river. And, and they haven't crumbled. And they still have all of their majesty. And Tolkien draws attention that it's the, the craftsmanship and the way these things were built that they just inspire almost dread. Like this forgotten kingdom, because the kingdom has been in exile for so long, that, that no one can even look at them because they're so imposing. It's like this greater civilization. So I'll, I'll kick it off to you to talk about the Argonaut.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, this is one of those things that I think the, the movie nails in the majesty of it. Um, I think the only thing, and, and this is, you know, because the movie doesn't get to really play with some of the some of the characterizations that are happening on the river. They do the Boromir work earlier, um, you know, and there's some other things. But for me, as I'm reading this chapter, one of the huge elements of this scene, obviously the power and majesty of the forebears of Aragorn are sitting, guarding the river in a halting position, right? (laughs) In such a way that the, the lesser people, the, or with Aragorn, which is saying something because these are mighty, right? This is a mighty party. Can't even look upon it. But the big, but the big thing here is that they come out of the fog, and what I see is Aragorn, the unknown, the you know, the unknown king coming out of the fog. As they come upon the Argonath, the fog lifts away. They pass through. Right, he's passed under the shadow of his forebears, and then he speaks and. And this is really interesting and, w- and then we, we can backtrack, but he says, um, it says, you know, Sam is saying, What a horrible place. Just let me get out of this boat and I'll never wet my toes in a puddle again. <laughs> it's not Sam saying this <laughs> <laughs> the Rube, you know. He can't handle he can't handle the magic of the place. And and then the next line says, Fear not, said a strange voice behind him. Frodo turned as though he didn't know who was in the boat with him. <laughs> right? right (laughs) Frodo turned and saw strider and yet not strider for the weather-worn ranger was no longer there in the stern sat Aragorn son of Arathorn proud and erect guiding the boat with skillful strokes his hood was cast back and his dark hair was blowing in the wind a light was in his eyes a king returning from exile to his own land you know and so the this is this is the crowning of the king right here He's coming out of the fog and he's about to claim his kingdom. And And so I think that's the, to me, that's where I saw the juxtaposition of the the degrading of Boromir, right? He's he's lessening himself while while Boromir is elevating himself.
0: Yeah, Boromir is afraid, right? All that Boromir is talking about is the danger of the rapids, the danger of the falls, the danger of the eastern shore, the danger of going that way, the, all the peril that's going mm-hmm. to come. Boromir's afraid. And what was the desire that hatched the lust for the ring in Boromir's mind in the first place? It was fear, right? He was afraid that Minas Tirith was not going to have the strength Mm -hmm. to defend its walls, that it needed a weapon. That's how he's described the ring over and over. He needs the weapon of the enemy to turn his power against him. And then you see the true-hearted king who says, with all of this, he says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And I think he's probably inspired by the majesty of his his sires, right? That he sees in a line that this is a kingdom that has birthed him. Essentially, this kingdom is laid in exile for way too long. But, but look at what they were capable of. Look at the awe-inspiring beauty and majesty that they were capable of building. And that's something that he's going to try to recreate. I think it's notable that it says the light of his eyes faded, and he wishes that Gandalf was there. But not because he has indecision. It's because he has this tremendous desire to go to Minas Anor. Which is really interesting because Minas Anor was the original name of the city, which was the Tower of the Sun, right? But it's been lessened as the kingdom perished to be called Minas Tirith, which is the Tower of the Guard. So the sun, look, I know that's intentional, right? <laughs> that, that what Tolkien does is he sets the heavenly bodies up as being powers in the air, right? There was a lot of thought that that the Tower of the Sun would show the absolute height of this kingdom. It would be a place of beauty and power. But the Tower of the Guard is a lesser thing. So Boromir wants the Tower of the Guard, and Aragorn wants to basically rebuild the Tower of the Sun. He wants the kingdom to come into full greenery again, and to rise up to where a Tower of the Guard, that's something you put out on an outpost somewhere. That's not at the heart of your kingdom. It's an interesting thing there, and I think... I saw it there and I had to consider a while what he was doing with it, but I'm pretty sure that it's about that. I think, I think it's showing that, that while Boromir is being driven by fear, that, that Aragorn is being driven by hope and the, and the desire to build back what his sires had lost and to renew this kingdom for the good of the whole world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, earlier, um, I think it's in the council of Elrond where, you know, where Boromir does refer to it as the bulwark of the West. And it's like, and, and, again it's that's the thing it's the same idea is like they want it it's like the tower of defense for the west but that's a limited vision right like the vision should be the light of the world <laughs> you know <laughs> well and, and it's like what 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 do you think um what do you think Isildur and um and Anarion's vision were right because they they establish the sun and the moon right what what do those do <laughs> those are the lights of the world
0: yeah i think it was not to be a bulwark against evil because that's mm-hmm. what a kingdom on its heels thinks about it's because they were about spreading the kingdom right. over the face of the earth that's why there was a kingdom in the north that's why there's a tower yeah. of the sun and a tower of the moon that's why they weren't yeah. naming the that thi- yeah. the way the way they named their city like Amon Sul, the the Tower of Watching or the Hill of Watching, right? The High Place, Amon Hin, the High Seat of Wisdom, Amon Law, and then the Tall Rock, like these mystical places that were all high. And it's always it's something that Tolkien has been playing with the ideas I think of high places and mountains mountains which were always seeing seen as being like the place where God is closest to Earth, right? And that's what Numenor was was set up like. Um, you know they were. They were obsessed with these high places that showed basically the glory of creation, the glory of wisdom and all that stuff, because they were not dominators who turned things into desolation like Sauron does. They were into dominion, not domination. It was spreading goodness as the sun and moon looked over the earth. It's such a rich tapestry that that's there, and it comes into play, and I, I think that it focuses all of the contrast in the chapter, that when we see Aragorn at this point, the chapter ends somewhat abruptly, and it's really interesting. I think... He took a break, maybe on the last chapter, and then he ends with his, you know, he brings these 110 mile an hour fastball innings that are really typical of Book Two. It says, "The tenth day of their journey was over. Wilderland was behind them. They could go no further without choice between the east way and the west. The last stage of the quest was before them." It's really interesting because I think what Book Two is going to do is it it basically ends the traveling, right? No more point A to point B. The forward momentum that's happened is basically going to only be Frodo at this point because the rest of the fellowship is circling and backtracking and going all over the place because of all the things that that fate takes them on and that's because the fellowship is broken and so there is no straight linear forward progression anymore while they had unity of purpose there was really one direction and when the fellowship starts to unravel there starts to be all kinds of different directions and i think i think it says it right there right it's the last stage of the quest because it really is the last stage because what's the next right. chapter the breaking, the breaking yeah. of the fellowship
1: yeah. Yeah, I thought so too. That, that the last sentence, the last sentence was just a high heater. <laughs> you know, you
0: know, it's it's funny in this chapter because I don't think many would hold it up as, as one of the greatest, but it, it has really some of the most beautiful stuff of any of them that we've read, and I think the Argonaut is really central to that. It's just sweeping, amazing stuff. I don't know did did you did you have any other things you wanted to do on this one? Because you're you're definitely
1: first this time on thoughts to roam with. <laughs> I'm definitely first. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Thoughts to roam with. Um, I think um, my thought to roam with is is tied really is tied to the Argonath, and that is that is the pinnacle, right? That's the climax of this chapter, and um, and it's it's really is for us to aspire to greater things and. Than what we're seeing in front of us. And I know that, like, these are some of these themes I know are consistent. And, and I think that's because of the truth and wisdom of the worldview that's injected into this book. And so, you know, what I, when, I, when I say that, I say, I, what I mean is that, look, Minas Tirith is a great city. And, and Bormir is right to desire a great city. However, his vision is too small. And so my my thought to roam with is for us to have a vision, right? A vision of the tower of the sun and the moon that shines the light of goodness, that shines the light of the craftsmen and you know and wisdom that crafted these two statues, that crafted hills of seeing and hearing, right, that crafted these things to aspire to that kingdom. Uh, and that kingdom, look, that kingdom is assured to us, uh, but but we have to do the work to build the people that that want that kingdom.
0: I'm going to stay along the same lines, and I'm going to throw a little blurb in before I do it, and say that this story is absolutely true in every sense that matters about a story. The Lord of the Rings is a true story. It absolutely nails the way that human beings work the way that kingdoms work it rings true in almost everything Mm -hmm. that it tries and I think that's why it's been read by millions and millions and millions of people so my thoughts to Rome with is is kind of it would be the thing that that's in your thoughts it's it's Boromir because we spent so much time there he should be great he has he has the office of the steward that's not going to end it's going to continue remember because you know, Isildur and Anarion were together, and the kingdom was powerful because they worked together. There was the steward and the king, right? And that's going to continue on with Faramir, who we haven't met yet, and Aragorn. It's not going to, to pass through rightful birthright, and that's because of what takes you out of the battlefield, and that is sin and wickedness. And what happens is no man can be courageous if he's harboring secret sin. And I've said it. It's, it's one of the biggest mantras I think I use in Christian teaching and counseling is that men have to be courageous because the Bible says the cowardly will be mm-hmm. thrown into the lake of fire, right? So you have to be courageous. It's not an option. It's not an option at all. And the thing that takes courage away from yeah. a man is hidden sin. And so Boromir's sin takes him straight off the battlefield. It makes him a coward and it makes him attack eventually the whole purpose of the mission. And, and you can see it here. Ultimately, I think if you didn't hear this for the four or five you know, episodes before, let me let me put it this way. Boromir is profoundly effeminate in this chapter. Boromir has his masculinity taken away from him in this chapter. He does not speak clearly. He does not speak honorably. He will not. Talk clearly, he doesn't make eye contact. he doesn't say what he really means. he's passive aggressive, he's skulking, he's leering and perverted in almost the the twisted sense of just looking and staring and being a real weirdo, right and also his mind is taken away and when your closest comp in the chapter is Gollum, that's not a good thing for you because Gollum is a sniveling shell of a being who had almost all of his soul taken away. It's been spread out over ten like ten pieces of bread with butter to only cover one piece of the bread, right? That's what's happened. And I think you're seeing it happen to Boromir. So I'd urge men that that this this is what I would give you as the thought to roam with. You can't have hidden sin. You have to confess it. You have to confess it to God, and you have to confess it to whoever you've sinned against. And you have to get it out of there because it'll eat you alive, just like it did with Boromir. Well, that's it for this time. We, we, we just went, uh, you know, a while on this one so i, I thought we would get done 35 i'm kind of scared of what's going to happen next week on the breaking of the fellowship because i know i know that it's it's really the hammer on the end of this chapter if you've been listening i, I you know i forgot to put it online a little tag here we're going to do a book two recap in two episodes if you think of it you can email or or put a question in the facebook group or a comment and and we'd love to answer those and address them just a shout out i know that drew has put a couple in already so He's in the hopper there, and I, I think probably two weeks out, um, we'll see how these things have. Maybe three, I don't know. We'll see how it happens, but we'll we'll get this this book next time. So join us again next time for the the breaking of the fellowship.